Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and Nick Graves is on assignment. And by that, I mean he's moving from Chicago to Virginia. So joining me today for episode 41 of The Mean is returning guest, Timothy Mark Davis. Hey, Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Ryan. How are you? Good. So you've been doing a little acting. You've been doing a little directing, a little studying of theater over the last few years of your life. Um, so we wanted to turn to you to a very important discussion for episode mm. 41, which is this little thing, you may have heard of it, listeners, called Hamilton. Mm. Um, what is this whole thing? Can you? Uh, some of our listeners probably have not heard of this because they're not cool kids. They don't live in Washington, D.C. or New York. But what's what's the deal? What's why is Hamilton a thing? What does it mean? What is it? Yeah, massive question. Um, but I'll I'll give it a shot. I won't I won't throw away my shot. Uh, at that's, least at trying good. it. I, I just I just realized that that's that that's if you if you got that joke right now, there's going to be a lot of that this episode. Okay. So I apologize to everyone. Who's Sorry to everyone who it. hasn't seen it or listened to the album as I did for the first time this morning. Um, so I'm a newly minted Hamiltonian, I guess. Mm. But yeah, so you want to take your shot. You want to tell us exactly what Hamilton's about and why it's such a big deal. Yes. So the, I guess the macro view of the whole thing is that Hamilton is a new Broadway musical with book, music, and lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who formerly um, sort of famous for his musical In the Heights which came out in 2007. I think it won the Tony Best Best Musical Tony Award in 2008. Uh, and it's based on the 2004 biography, biography by Ron Chernow uh, on Alexander Hamilton. So the story goes, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda was going on vacation for a sort of post in the Heights. He picked up mm -hmm. the Chernow biography in the airport, he read the first two chapters and was like, this has to be a musical. Someone has to have made this already a movie, a musical, a play, something. So he jumped yep. on the internet and he found nothing and he was like, oh my gosh, I have to do this. So originally he was going to make a mixtape that was going to be like a, a concept album. And then it grew into a musical. It took him six years to develop um, and it tracked the life and times of one of our founding fathers who lesser known to many of us, but I think he's, he's sort of become hot historically and you can probably address this more so Ryan, but in the last 10 or so years, um, supporters and interest in Hamilton has definitely grown even amongst historians, even before the musical came out, but now that the musical is out, it's just catastrophic. Yeah, I think just from the history angle, and you can kind of tell us how it continued to come together and, and why it's such a big deal uh, in terms of the art side of it. But for the history part of it, I think there's been a reexamination of some of the founding fathers who maybe didn't get as much press yeah. as um, as Washington, um, Jefferson, and perhaps even, even mm -hmm. Madison. But um, I think that started with uh, David McCullough um, writing his books, 1776 and yeah. John Adams, John Adams yep. and then the, the HBO miniseries about John Adams, kind of like he was considered kind of a joke and kind of a disappointment and the first one term president yep. and got eclipsed by Washington on the, on the front end and, and Jefferson on the back end. And, and then John Adams, the, the book and the miniseries really gave his life a new, uh, kind of a, a new, um, hearing, 
uh, in the in the audience of the United States. And I think that Hamilton was another guy who everyone expected to become this um, this incredible force, and he was, but his life got cut tragically short. I remember for me the first notion of Alexander Hamilton that I ever had was this old commercial in the 1990s. It was one of those Got Milk yeah. um, commercials where this guy's eating like a peanut butter sandwich and he's listening to a radio show and the radio show says that, you know, the first caller that calls in with the answer to our trivia question wins such and such. And, um, and uh, the question is who shot Alexander Hamilton in a duel? Uh. And the guy frantically picks up the phone and he looks all around his house and there's all these pictures of the duel. Like he's obsessed <laughs> with the duel. Oh like he, this is the one thing that he loves more than anything else. He picks up the phone to try to call in and he's like, I want ball. I want ball. Because he can't say it because he has this peanut butter sandwich stuck to the roof of his mouth. And then, it, you know, the, the phrase got milk comes across the screen wow. and i remember thinking commercial yeah it was like a really well put together commercial yeah. like he knows the answer he right. wants to win this these tickets or whatever but he, he doesn't have milk because the peanut butter sandwich yeah. is you know stuck to the roof of his mouth and he, and he can't say it was aaron burr who killed alexander hamilton in a duel and cut hamilton's life tragically short everyone thought that hamilton was going to be president yeah. Um, you know, he was one of the, he was, uh, George Washington's, uh, aide de camp, uh, mm-hmm. right hand man during the war. He fought bravely, he commanded his own troops at one point. He mm-hmm. married into a wealthy family, although he rose from obscurity. He was a genius. He was brilliant. He wrote the majority of the Federalist Papers, which yep. are our, our major, um, reference for examining, uh, kind of what the constitution is trying to say. Like when we have constitutional debates, people always go to the federalist papers. He wrote like 50, 51 of them, I think. Um, And so he was this towering intellect. He, you know, made a few missteps. He stepped out on his wife for one and he, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe, uh, you know, kind of left a paper trail um, and he kind of was confronted. Now all these historical events are captured in the musical which is kind of like as a as a former history teacher and a, and a history buff i'm so excited to see um not not a piece of art that's completely historically accurate because i don't think right. that's the point Correct. of art um but one that seeks to stay true to the source material uh whenever yep. possible so that for me that's why i'm excited that's why uh you know i like the the whole thing the whole phenomenon but from the theater side from the musical side from the art side why do you think this has struck such a chord uh yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I think, I think the man who created it is is uh, the place to start in answering that question. Okay. I mean, uh, Lin Manuel Manuel Miranda is um, his roots are in a couple different things. One of them being musical theater. Yeah. Um, obviously, um, he was a theater major in in college, and he listened to all of the great musicals growing up on, a re- on record players. Uh, the other aspect is that he's deeply entrenched into hip hop. Uh, he's a freestyle okay. rapper. He's been a part of freestyle rap groups. So this sort of, I think the thing that is so captivating on a larger scale is that the musical captures what is amazing and essential and compelling about musical theater as mm-hmm. as a form. And so your your average you know, I love Wicked, I love Phantom, I love Sondheim, I love Rent, you know, whatever it may be, your, your musical theater goer finds compelling, familiar things in the musical. Um, but they also find something fresh and new because it's 
that's being dubbed uh, a quote-unquote rap musical or hip-hop musical. That's the piece that I think fascinates musical theater people who mm-hmm. haven't mm-hmm. formerly been into rap or hip-hop. But yeah. at the same time, it elevates its cultural status because, as we know, hip-hop is enormous right now, culturally yep. speaking, in the music yep. industry. Yeah, and I would add to that, just just having sat down and listened to the entire thing this morning, it's not just hip-hop no, not or rap. It really is, you know, the title of the of the, the musical was Hamilton, an American musical. Yeah. And I think every, every major, not every, but many major styles of American music are represented. Definitely. Um, not just musical theater, not just hip hop and rap, but there's there's other sort of um, allusions to major Americana, uh, American styles of music. And I think part of it for me is, yeah, it's that fusion of musical theater, of the melody, of the catchy tunes, of yep. obviously the top end talent that that Broadway has to offer, mm-hmm. combined with the skill of the of the major figures, including Lynn uh, uh Miranda and like to to listen to their their hip hop skill and their singing skill and know that there's something visual going on that I haven't even gotten to see yeah. as of yet that you know like I there's so much going on and then to hear that like little kids are memorizing this entire thing oh yeah that's oh, incredible yeah. you know we're 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 hearkening back to the days when education in traditional cultures was done entirely by song yep and there's going to be a generation of kids who know more about the American founding than their parents or their grandparents mm-hmm. because of this, because of this. Movie. Yeah, and just as, as an anecdote to that, um, my niece is 11, my nephew is seven, about to turn eight. Um, they, they have, were sort of introduced to it by their, um, their cousins on, on the, the other side of the family. And then I got my, my niece a soundtrack for her birthday. And they have been listening to it nonstop. Um, is there a censored version? <laughs> um, no, there's not. So you're like you, your your parents, their grandparents are like cool with. The, well, the... I mean, this is my my niece is very like she's smart, smart. So she yeah. knows like I'm supposed to turn it down here. I'm supposed to not listen. Yeah, here. I'm supposed to not say that word. Yeah, because there is some some hip hop language that's is. imported into the Correct. the colonial story. Yeah, but point being, they have entire songs completely memorized. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my nephew is seven, and, and his goal, uh, the song the, the song Guns and Ships, um, which mm-hmm. Lafayette's Lafayette. extremely fast rap in there, like fourth fastest mm-hmm. rap mm-hmm. recorded of all time, or whatever. Uh, he's obsessed with that song, and he wants to listen to it and sing it all the time. And it's, but it's it's what you said. It's they're they're garnering all of this whether they know it or not, all of this historical knowledge just by falling in love with the musical. Incredible. It, it, it's such, it's such a blueprint. I know there's going to be like a thousand ripoffs of this and some of them are going to yep. be terrible, but I think, I think some of them are, are going to yeah. be decent. They're not going to be this. They're not going to be as original. Um, but I think it tells you something about where education could take this. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's already, you know, they are busing in thousands of kids every week to see free performances of the Broadway musical in New York as a part of their history curriculum. You know, that's already that's already started for months now. Um, so kids from all all across the 
social spectrum are getting to experience this show as the curriculum piece in their history classes in New York. And I'm sure that will, you know, it's going to be a Chicago, San Francisco, and LA production, a it's London coming production. Coming to LA, yeah. Yep. And, and that yep. same thing's going to happen. That's going to remain a component. And eventually, forever. this stuff's this stuff's going to be in regional theater. It's going to be high schools are. Gonna it's going to tour this, professionally. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, this. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to get too corny here, but this this could change. Like like when as an educator, I know how poorly educated a large percentage of America's kids are about their own right. history. Like yeah. it's, it's a problem. Like when you watch like a Jimmy Kimmel piece or like, a, <laughs> yeah. you know, a man on the street, like talking yep. to people about history, it's like, people don't know anything. And it's like, this could literally change the relationship between young, young people and American yeah. history. Yeah, definitely. And other stories, like people could say, well, we're going to do this with world history. We're going to do this with European history. We're going to do this with philosophy, whatever it is. It's a, yeah. you know, it's a more serious version of kind of the epic rap battle of history um yeah. kind of youtube approach now let's get into some of the nitty-gritty of the story itself the composition itself yeah. uh, give us a few highlights of of the musical you don't have to perform it of course but some of your favorite parts um either as the story how the story goes or how something is communicated emotionally um or a favorite character what what really grabbed you um as you listen to the soundtrack yeah, so my first my first time through it, um, I, I listened to it in a, in a few different chunks and just listened straight through. And the first thing that stuck out to me was, I feel like the entire musical is on the soundtrack. Like, I don't think I missed very much. And this was before I had much knowledge about the musical itself. I was just, you know. Yeah, there's not a lot of that, like, talking in between tracks. Like, everything's, and that, everything's yeah, a song. I realized there there is one song missing from the soundtrack everything else that you hear is what the musical is so the entire through line of the the story the spine of the story is on the soundtrack mm -hmm. uh, and so probably the the most compelling aspect of the musical for me um and, and there are several but the one that stuck out first and that has stuck with me is that that aaron burr alexander hamilton relationship mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which you know a lot of it's fictionalized for the sake of drama mm -hmm. but, but that's where you know where it's like it's it's you said the history is not what's essential here but we're crafting a story crafting a narrative that's trying to to move people and and it's art so you know, we don't have to worry about the facts as much but having aaron burr as that character who introduces hamilton who he gives us all of our in-betweens he, he basically functions as the narrator but then we get to see him step in and we see this uh, we, we see this other nature to him, whereas history has characterized him as this awful, gross, ugly, sinister man who killed Alexander Hamilton. Now, that very well may be true. I'm pretty sure Aaron Burr was kind of a jerk. What the musical does is it three-dimensionalizes the antagonist. Yeah. Um, and so by the end of the musical, you have this empathy for Hamilton, but you also have this empathy for Burr and, and you really find yourself like such conflict is achieved between the characters but not to the point that I love one and hate the other like I'm compelled and, and on all of their team and feel bad for them and you know regret what they did and want them to succeed all at the same time uh, which is which is hard it, it makes the story and the characterization very complex you know it's not like good guy bad guy 
Yeah, for me as a history guy, I really appreciate that aspect. Maybe because yeah. of the history angle and just having studied historiography myself and, and kind of knowing that writing history is such a craft and such an art and such a science. Mm-hmm. My favorite song in that light, in the light of, of how history gets made, is the song Burn. Yeah. Um, which is sung by um, Eliza. Yep. Isn't it? Yep. Eliza Hamilton, the, the wife of Alexander, where basically something blows up in their life and it's a big controversy and Alexander makes it public because he wants to clear his name. And yep. she's like, I'm not giving you any history. Like, I'm like, yeah. I, I'm stepping outside of this narrative. I don't want to taking be... myself from the narrative. Yeah. yeah, it's like what Taylor Swift said to Kanye a few weeks ago. <laughs> I, I don't want to be right. part of this narrative. She She basically says the character says. I'm burning these letters. I'm burning your letters. I'm not leaving this for history. It, this is not anybody's business. This is not history's business. Right. And that's yeah. so genius to me. I've never oh, seen is. a character before made to say, this is why there is no record of my response to this. Event. Yeah. Like it's totally fictional, but yeah. it seems somehow true to the story. Yeah. There's, there's definitely this double layer to the musical of awareness. It's like, mm-hmm. we know that we're doing history. And we know that um, certain people have been characterized in this way, and we are acknowledging those gaps. And we're also now acknowledging what you said, the historiography of this, which is someone tells the story. Yep. And, and, and whoever tells it, it's going to have a specific, uh, a specific bias, a specific viewpoint, you know, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, if someone else refrain, were telling that story, same thing. There, there's the refrain of who lives, who dies, who tells your story. Exactly. And that's the yep. final track on the on the soundtrack. Like yep. that's the last word is who who's going to tell your story, audience, but also we're the ones telling you this story. Right. And, and it's because of who lived and who died. Yeah. And that comes back to your point about Aaron Burr. If Hamilton shoots Burr, maybe history is completely different. Yeah, and there's you know one of the you bring up the end in Aaron Burr. It just reminds me one of one of my favorite little nuggets. Uh, and the more you dig, the more little nuggets you get. But one of Burr's last uh, solo lines, he sings, um, "I should have known the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and I." Mm-hmm. A little research on that. Burr, after he shot Hamilton, historically sort of ran away, escaped, went into hiding and obscurity. And in a letter to a friend, he wrote those exact words, mm. sort of the regret of his his anger and his passion of killing Hamilton. He wrote in a letter to a friend, I should have known the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and I. It's beautiful. Um, it is. It is really beautiful. Yeah. Now, do we know, um, I haven't looked into the details of the duel itself. Is, is it indeed historically accurate that Hamilton pointed his gun skyward? What? Yeah, I, I did some research on that, and it's actually inconclusive. Um, okay. It's sort of a split decision. Uh, Hamill or Lin Manuel went with the he aimed his pistol at the sky and, and threw away a shot in surrender, sort of. But there's I read an article several months ago, so I can't recount the details. But it was like could have been this, could have been this, could have been this, could have been this factor. But it's basically we don't, as with many things in history, you know, we pretend to. Uh, we don't know for sure if he if he threw away his shot. I wanted to talk a little bit about the cast. Yeah. In addition to Lynn Manuel, you have an extremely diverse mm-hmm. cast. Um a cast that comes more out of 
it seems like urban hip hop, African American island culture than from kind of the white stodgy Euro um, history as it, as it uh, unfolded in, you know, in reality. Um, even to the point where one thing I noticed was that the, the Skylar sisters, mm-hmm. they're like three different yep. <laughs> like races, kind of like they're yep. three different mixtures, three different kind of color tones in, in their skin and hair. Yep. I thought, I thought that was kind of a really incredible because you've seen people remix Shakespeare and be like, it's too white. We need to bring, you know, people in that don't look like that. Right. But like to have three sisters, like be of different races, but be sisters. I thought that was kind of an interesting and kind of a beautiful casting statement. Right. Yeah. And so the theme, the theme from, from Lin-Manuel that, that has always come up on this issue is it's twofold. It's, I wanted to tell, and this is him speaking, I wanted to tell the story of America um, from 250 years ago uh, using what America looks like today. Yep. Um, which, you know, f- far more diverse for sure. Mm. Uh, and the second reason being I wanted to do a, a hip-hop musical uh, and compared to In the Heights. You know, In the Heights has similar musical themes, but this is definitely a, a further step into hip-hop. There's a lot more rap. Uh, and just culturally speaking, people, people of uh, African American descent, people um, who are Hispanic, have a greater acumen for that genre of music than Caucasian people. Yeah, and it came out of New York City. It came out of the Bronx. It came out of Queens. It came out of the community, African American, Puerto Rican, Jamaican communities where there was already that kind of set up in that rhythm and that, right. you know, the, the ability. Um, so this is an interesting thing that I really respect about Lynn manuel Miranda. And I think it's why left, right, and center people have been praising this and people have been really excited about it is that he's given everybody something to love and also something that challenges them. Yeah, he's refused to kind of be like, this is a completely progressive thing, or this is a completely conservative thing, or this is completely black or white or Latino or, or what have you. He's, he has created something as diverse and complex as American society itself. Mm -hmm. Um, In that it does reflect this old Euro white male story, but it also diversifies it by giving voice to the women in the story by having um, African American and other persons of color singing the words, rapping the words, bringing beats. You know, there's a lot of beatboxing um, Mm -hmm. in some of these songs as well. I think he finds this third way that I've been looking for to navigate controversy, historical controversy surrounding our racist past, our past of slavery, our past of male dominance, where he he says, we're not going to pretend like this didn't exist. And we're not going to pretend like all these people were pieces of crap because they, because they did things that we now see as wrong. What we're going to do is try to tell their stories as complex people who did certain things that were good and did certain things that we now see as bad. um, And that I would claim just are bad. Slavery, (laughs) it just is bad. It's not just that we see it that way. Um, I'm not fully postmodern enough to just say we only see it as bad. But he's taking these complex characters and saying, I'm going to give them their day. I don't want to take Hamilton off the $10 bill. I don't want to take, you know, these kind of uh, old dead white guys who were probably a lot of them are probably racist and that's just how they were. I'm not trying to take them out of history. I'm not trying to forget them. I'm not trying to rewrite our, our American history, but I am going to do it 
in such a way that gives voice to the people who didn't have a voice back then. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's a line that I thought it, it, there's a line that's pretty clever. You can probably correct me, but it's a line. Uh, it's, I think it's one of the cabinet battles. No, it's when Jeff, it's right after Jefferson comes back. Yeah. And it's about, you know, one of the major controversies of the new union was how is the South going to relate to the North? This led direct, almost directly to the civil war. This is why the three fifths mm-hmm. compromise that, that counted black people as three fifths of a person is in the constitution because the South wanted to keep slavery. Many in the North already were like, Hey, this is bad. We shouldn't have this. This is going to be a bad deal. Um, yep. And so Jefferson comes back from Paris and there's this line about, who like about owning slaves and like who's doing the real work? Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, that's that's in the cabinet battle, which is the right the first after, one. It's in the first one, and um, it's in Hamilton's response, and he says, <laughs> "It's so it's so good." Oh yeah, because it's um, about Hamilton trying to get the debts together to create exactly. the national bank and the south, and and like Jefferson's like, "Hey, the south is fine. We paid our debt. You guys have debt up there. That's your that's your issue." Right. Hamilton's response is a civics lesson from a slaver. Hey, neighbor, your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. In Virginia, we plant seeds in the South. We create. Keep ranting. We know who's really doing the planting. I mean, that is that is so subversive. It's so oh, yeah. awesome. Oh, it's great. like it's like there there was this real tension between the economy of the South and slavery and the North. And even this, like this, like superiority complex that the North had about it because their economy didn't rely upon slavery and they never really were in a position where it had to. So they were both righteous and self-righteous. You know, they were, they were like, Hey, well, you know, you know, you don't have to pay for labor. Maybe that's why I don't have any debt. I mean, that shows you the seeds of what would lead to the civil war. And I think it's Miranda's way of being like, Hey guys, we're telling a story about these guys and they are great men and they really did accomplish amazing things. But also it's also true that some of these people owned other people and that's bad and it's hypocritical because they were talking about freedom. And I think that's like such an incredible way to tell the history, not to throw the baby out with a proverbial bathwater, but to say, yeah, these guys were great and they're also bad dudes in certain yep. ways. And like, and that's okay for us to admit. And we ourselves should also realize that history will look upon us who will tell our story. We have things about us that people are probably going to look back and go, that probably wasn't the best way to do that guys. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think this, it, it touches on the broader idea um, that, that I love about this. And it reminded me that sometimes art really is the best medium to get ideas on the table because everything you're saying goes back to the reality that uh, the creator of the show is an artist. Yeah. He's not a philosopher. He's not a sociologist. He's not a psychologist. He's a musical theater artist. He's a composer and a lyricist. He's giving breath and life to characters that happen to have their base in history. So he has a lot of source material that he's working through. Oh yeah. But at the end of the day, he is telling a story that has a different aim than trying to convince someone that their point of view is wrong or that they should come to our point of view. But in so doing, he, he finds the artist's line of here's a bunch of ideas. Here's a, a, a confluence of, uh, ideas that are on opposite sides of the spectrum use this musical as a 
as a sounding board, as a piece of evidence, as a uh, as a way to express your own thoughts on something. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't followed up his creation of the musical with an essay on his historical method, with yeah. the point he was trying to make about yeah. um, Black Lives Matter, with you know whatever it may be. He he never tried to use. He hasn't so far tried to use the musical to make some type of cultural or philosophical point. He's an artist who tells stories. Yeah, and I think that's that's an interesting larger point. Uh, Jessica and I, my wife, Jessica, we went to a concert the other day, and it was called Women Who Score. And it was like all these really accomplished um, women who had written different parts of film scores or television yeah. or... Now, if you don't know, over 98% of major motion pictures are scored by men. So it's right. one of the most like male-dominated industries or even nooks of industry that we have in the United States. Um, and so we went to this this event, and it was all these women conducting their own scores and a really accomplished professional orchestra playing their stuff. And part of it was just this really high quality art. And then the other part of it was this almost like identity politics cheerleading. Yeah. And Jessica, as a woman composer, she was like, I wish that part wasn't in it. I mm -hmm. wish we just came together and said, here's our art and didn't yeah. like give like a lecture and didn't like say, and didn't include people whose art really wasn't that good, but they happened to be women. So they got, they got kind of yeah. shoehorned in like the first, you know, part of the concert and a lot of the, the, the cream that rose to the top was really great and it's a testament to what women can do as composers but the whole speechification of what women can do as composers actually took away from it for my mm. wife and for me but for my wife who is a female composer who is someone trying to make it in the industry and i think sometimes making everything into now the moral of the story johnny right is this, <laughs> it's like hey i think people are smart enough to I mean, not all of them, but I think people, a lot of people are smart enough to listen to Hamilton, to learn Hamilton, to have it soak into who they are and go, oh, I learned something about history. I learned something about America. I learned something yeah. about hip hop. I learned something about race relations. Yeah. I learned something about slavery, you know, and that we don't have to say, well, now let me do, and I'm sure this will happen. Let me do my doctoral dissertation on Hamilton. You know, like, yeah, it's like, that's yeah. fine, but Hamilton's always going to be better than, than the <laughs> stuff we write about Hamilton. Right. Yeah, and that's you know it's we're we're sticking our toes in a giant lake of a conversation, which which you and Nick have have come back to several times, and it's it's a complex conversation, and I definitely don't have it. But it is interesting to me, even you know working in it sort of dawned on me uh, a week or two ago, doing theater in South Florida, and. Um, I'm currently building a theater company with with a group of friends, and we're still, you know, we just had our first season, and we're still establishing identity. What's our niche? What kind of language are we going to use to describe ourselves? And sort of realizing as we compared ourselves to other theaters in the area, um, a lot of a lot of art is sort of being twisted. Um, bastardized might be too strong of a word but it, it might be the right word into a, a social agenda and I, and I don't want to use that phrase like pejoratively but in the same way you know we have conservative evangelical backgrounds yeah in the same way that we've seen christians use mm -hmm. art to propagate their message mm -hmm. i think we're also seeing 
um, progressives or people who are the opposite of Christian, I don't know, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. use art in the same way as, as propaganda. Um, Absolutely. My friend Jim yeah. used to say Christianity is no excuse for poor art. And yeah. we, we've seen this before. You and I can smell when art is not the point. When, right. when when art is right. being used to advance and yes all art to some extent is political i'm not denying that i'm not pretending there's this thing yep. called art that I floats agree. out there and has nothing to do with society it's made by people for people and therefore is always going to be political but what i'm saying is it's a matter of degree to what yep. degree is your art simply a tool to get your message across simply a political tool simply something right. that you're trying to use and to what extent are you actually trying to make art and i would argue um miranda does an unbelievable job balancing these two instincts. And I think he errs on the side of art for art's sake, yet still there is a powerful political message in the art actually existing. Right. And that's, and that's on the, you know, that's on the artist as much as it is on the audience or on the consumer of the art. Uh, It's that, it's finding your personal integrity as an artist that says, yes, I have beliefs. Yes, I have biases. Yes, they're going to come out in my art as they should because I'm not going to separate my worldview from what I create. That would yeah. be dangerous, I think. But I'm going to uh, surrender myself to the laws of, the, of form in my in whatever art form I'm, I'm operating in, I'm going to learn the form. I'm going to develop my own style. I'm going to put the process and the product of making art ahead of my own agenda. Um, and in so doing, I mean, I've sort of settled, and this may change, but the greatest art for me asks the hardest questions. Mm. Um, Madeline Langle is a sort of aesthetic and theological mother of mine. She wrote The Wrinkle in Time trilogy she has a great book uh it's called uh, walking on water reflections on faith and art just sort of her journey through uh how she how those things come together for her uh, her writing and, and her faith background um but that's one of her points the, the greatest art asks the hardest questions yep. it doesn't have to be an agenda driven uh thing and when it's turned into that by other people i think it can be i think it can be un- unfortunate at the same I, time, however, I think creating a space because of an art piece where people can debate ideas that are philosophical in nature, I think that's great. We just have to learn how to argue better. Yeah, and I think if when you really look at philosophically um, defined um, concepts of what a classic is, a classic, something like Shakespeare, um, transcends the context in which it was written. Yeah. So a classic is something that it has a universal appeal. And I think what yeah. happens when we utilize something for a particular political agenda is that we take away from the universality of the appeal that the art can have. So mm. we, we declassicize it. Like if we take Shakespeare and we make it more and more about socialism or capitalism or whatever, we're cutting out part of the universal audience that, that a classic naturally appeals to. Um, and right. I think in so doing, we cheapen the level of artistic quality or integrity that's in it. And once again, this is not to say that art can't, uh, you know, um, produce political gains and ought not. It it certainly yep. can and should. Um, yep. All right, everyone. Uh, my twelve week old son Max is joining us for the uh, the last part of the podcast. Yeah, he Max. Sat, Max. He sat with me and listened to the album this morning, and he has some thoughts. 
you know, he has, mm-hmm. he has some things that he's thinking. Actually, the interesting thing about this kid is that he loves rock and roll and like hip hop beats. Like he loves like drum and bass kind of lines. And he was, um, he was, he's very soothed by it. So he can be kind of upset. And then if I play, if I play something like Hamilton or if I play something like Guns N' Roses, anything in the kind of like upbeat, crazy, like something that's going to give you a little bit more of, um, a little bit more energy. He, uh, he really seems to like that stuff. Now this makes sense because, um, my wife is a composer. She writes crazy music sometimes for, for things, for shows that have like really electronic backbeats. And, uh, that's what he was listening to in the womb as he uh, was developing, uh, into a human being, a fully formed human being. Yeah. And, um, this is one of the reasons I'm excited about, about Hamilton. Cause I know the minute this kid can start talking, like he's going to drink in the goodness of things like Hamilton. <laughs> and I'm going to be able to teach him so many things. And cause I know it's not going to end with Hamilton, the, the, the copycats, although some of them will be bad. The copycats will allow me, allow me to have conversations with my son um, that I otherwise would never have been able to have. And yeah. I think that's going to be part of the legacy of Hamilton is a genre has been created. Yeah. I mean, this is sort of like the way that J.K. Rowling, you know, took the the building's Roman novel and the mystery novel and the fantasy, you know, magic wizard thing and combined it into like a brand new genre that really hadn't existed mm-hmm. um, before that. And I think Lin-Manuel Miranda has done something just as profound um, for Americans, especially American youth, uh, who are going to be able to absorb history in ways that they, they never could before. Yeah, definitely. So, Tim, I want to have a little bit of a broader conversation um, about where, because we touched on this the last time you were on the podcast, which was probably about six months ago or so, um, yeah. in terms of where's theater going, where is musical theater going, how how does Hamilton play into that, has it changed the course of musical theater at all? And, like, to be honest, like, you know, Hamilton has changed the course of American history. Uh, mm-hmm. Alexander Hamilton's face was going to be taken off the $10 bill. Yeah. Uh, and t- until this musical came around, now people are like, no, 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 we can't do that. Take off Andrew Jackson instead. Yeah, yeah, which is a better <laughs> idea because Andrew Jackson was a, was a, well, I can't say it around my son, but he was he not was a nice mean. guy. He, he was, was a mean, mean dude. He's a mean yeah. dude. So, you know, so history, you know, history was corrected, course corrected by some, some guy writing some rap, you know, musical. But yeah. what is it? What is it doing to the theater world? What was the theater world like six months before Hamilton opened, and has it changed at all since then? Oh my gosh, that is a that is a massive question. We only um, ask the big questions here, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm probably not I'm probably not equipped to give you the most accurate answer of like where has musical theater been and now where is it? But I can certainly give you my my thoughts on the, on the impact of the show. Um, I, I think one, one of the things that, you know, we haven't talked about this at all yet, but people have been paying thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to go yes. see this show. Crazy money. So it's, it's making... You know, it, it's revenue. I think I read was is like one point five million a week. Do you, do you think Lin uh, Manuel Miranda is gonna? Do you think he's gonna make it financially? You think he's? You gonna know, it, it's gonna be tough. It's gonna be hard. But but I, I think I think he'll be. You know, if it's 
parents help out a little bit. I think he's going to be able to keep living in New York. I mean, I wonder if a studio has bought the rights to, you know, the, the movie version. Of oh, my yet. gosh. I, yeah. I mean, and, and that's a whole other conversation. We, we've seen how yep, yep. Wick, Wicked is supposed to have been a movie forever, and it's just yep. it's tied up and it's a mess trying to get mm-hmm. that made. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it makes $1.5 million a week. Miranda as as book lyricist and composer writer. That's in one theater, right? That's in oh, yeah. one. It, in it only York. happens in New York on Broadway. Yeah, no, it's insane. It's it's unbelievable the sort of uh, draw that it has created only in well, one I, spot. I think I'm not wrong to say I I believe that tickets for when the touring show comes to LA or when it comes to LA, I think the tickets are already sold out. So, oh, and that's sure. in 2017. Yeah, sure. So that's what's happening. That's yeah. what we're talking about here. And and there's, you know, t- tickets sort of start at one. I think I read 139, um, and they go up to 160. But then you know these these sites like StubHub pick them up and then they turn them around and sell them for two thousand bucks and people yeah. pay for it. And Miranda takes home seven percent as of the weekly profit, just as the creator aside from his acting in it and he, he's no longer acting in it but when he was he's taking, taking home about 100 grand a, a week i think i read 105 105 was the estimate a week mm-hmm. just for creating the musical mm-hmm. okay now some of that he gives to the out of his share he cuts it to the biographer to ron Chernow, oh, which neat. is pretty cool and some of the other artistic uh cr- creative leaders on the musical um the point being, it's, it's the draw of the musical has been incredible. Now, I'm not really a, I'm really one to believe that, you know, theater is dying and, and musical theater is is dying and, and plays well, are well, dying. Let me say something. Let me say something. Like, yeah, there's a it. reason why a few years at the Tonys, when there were some slightly broader topics um in the broadway kind of catalog that year why neil patrick harris sang the song it's not just for gays anymore <laughs> right <laughs> he sang that at the tonys yeah. like like that was the opening number yeah. and that was the point the point is is that this is an insular community for the most part and if it's not gay it's certainly elite coastal white well wealthy people right, right. mostly that are yeah. that are the that are the, the, the have been the patrons of this art form for the last several decades now, has Hamilton changed that at all? I would say it's it's changed it more, and we already talked about some. It's changed it more on the front of um, diversity in terms of performers. Mm-hmm. Um, so creating a musical where it's, it's it's one of its tenets is like this. You know, in order for Miranda's vision to be communicated this needs to be an ethnically diverse cast I won't have it any other way mm-hmm. um, that's making a statement about mm-hmm. the amount the percentage of people of color in this country is way more than it was when, when we started as, as a nation um, yeah it's like in I think it's in the 40s now yeah it's yeah, yeah I, I think I feel like you guys have talked about this before yeah um, it's it's approaching half yeah um and yeah. so to 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 make a musical that says only people of color only people of and not only i mean there are white there are white performers in in the musical and there can be um but i think that's sort of the big the big statement for me because in terms of the life of theater i mean regional theater has taken off in this country musicals are being 
being performed all the time. Plays are being performed all the time. Yeah, and um, the, the African-American theater um, heritage has gone back a while now. We've had some, you could say it's token, but we've had some great pieces of black theater um, that oh, have really definitely. caught on and done really well. Definitely. Um, but I would add, for me, I think it's really cool that they bus in like public school kids and that rather, you know, to, to every performance, there's a certain amount of tickets that go to, to, to young people that would not have been able to get yep. a ticket otherwise, right? Yep. Yep. And it's, you know, it's sort of making, it's making it, uh, if you want to say cultural statement or social statement through its charity as opposed to through its story. Uh, which is, which is awesome, you know. So, when will be your first chance to actually see this thing? You think? What's you know? I don't know if I'll get to see it in the next couple of years. Um, yeah. You know, diapers are expensive, and I don't live in. New oh, York. I get it. I get it. Although I do live in LA, so maybe I could. Like, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's it's coming there, so it, I mean, it could happen, maybe. Um, there is, you know, I, I have. I have seen a, I don't know if I should say this on a podcast, okay. uh, but I have seen a, a bootleg copy of the musical Uh-oh. of the Uh-oh. original Broadway cast. Should, should we go back and delete this? And I no, not say that. No, it's awesome. No, it's awesome. Okay. It exists. It's out there. People know, I'm sure. Okay. Yeah. So, which is, you know, it, it, I almost feel guilty doing that because it's so not what theater is. It's just like, but I couldn't help myself. I had to see how the, the lighting and the staging and, and all that worked mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, I think a tour is set for next year. Maybe it will come to, to Miami or Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. But it's it's probably going to be a while before I, before I get a chance to see it. So as we kind of wrap this up, we think about the, the historical angle, the theater angle, the cultural angle, race relations in America, you know, have, have seen better times than this. Is there is there a potential to do more than simply appeal to a a more diverse audience? Is there actually any potential in your mind to actually for Hamilton to impact the way that we talk to one another about these things? Or do you think it's going to simply be something that changes the, the the demography of musical theater? Hmm. I mean, I think we've already seen. I think we've already seen some conversations happening. You know, there's already been some criticism of the musical, um, and then there was criticism criticism of the musical in terms of like it's not. It, it thinks it's making this point about cultural diversity, but it's really making the opposite point because of blah 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 blah. And then there's just enormous backlash on that. Well, there's always like the internet always has to have a backlash and the backlash. Outrage. The backlash. Yeah. yeah, outrage. And one of the it. one of the best things I read was uh, when this first when criticism first started coming out, and then all the Hamilton lovers started freaking out and losing their minds that anyone would say anything negative about this musical. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember what it was. I can't remember who wrote it or what site it was on, but it was it was a, an opinion piece of a guy being like. This is what we want to happen. You know, we, we want something to be created that immediately people fall in love with and are all about and are studying and are reading the biography. And then we want other people to look at it and be like, I don't know if this is 
I don't know if this is the right angle. I, I would question this methodology. I would mm -hmm. question this idea that everyone thinks is so prevalent. Maybe it's not as prevalent. Mm -hmm. And basically the article was like, it's, it's, this is good. Like this is yeah. the, in some ways, this is the purpose of, of art outside of the theater is to create discussion, create arenas for debate. Um, mm -hmm. When I would say like in our culture, we have a couple different ways that we're trying to deal with questions of race and culture and differences. And one of them is the kind of colorblind, hey man, I just see people, I don't see race, which I think most of the time is probably not true. Um, right. And the other one is like either positive or negative racism. By that, I mean using race as the basis of the conversation. So somebody says, I don't like black people because they're black. And someone else says, no, we should help black people because they're black. Like those right. are the two, the two major ways that people are playing this, right. um, this conversation. One is to say, I don't know what you're talking about. I just see people. The other one is to say, no, obviously there's a difference because of history and because of oppression and violence and all these things. On the one hand, people are like, well, I think white people are better. That's a small group. <laughs> uh, a much larger group is saying, hey, we should figure out like how to help, you know, marginalized people. Right. And, you know, whether it's through affirmative action or, or whatever, uh, through different programs or, or through, you know, uh, targeted, like I'm going to invest in minority owned banks or things of that nature, mm -hmm. um, education reforms and things of that nature. I would say this. We will know that we're at a truly egalitarian society, a truly equal society where race really has ceased to matter as much when it is expected that articles or artifacts of black culture, of Latino culture, of mixed race culture, of Asian culture, when they get criticized just as harshly as stuff that comes out of the dominant mm. or previous do dominant culture. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring it down to a microcosm with you. There are certain friendships that I have that are so strong that it doesn't, it, it, we know that I'm white and my friend is black or that I'm white and my friend is Latino or that I'm white and my friend is Asian, but we're, we're able to be so real with one another that our, our honesty and accountability to one another transcends the awkwardness of the fact that there is a racial dynamic and that there are power, historical power, power dynamics. Yeah. And I think that Hamilton is such a powerhouse that it's yeah. a good sign that people are coming out and critiquing it and not going, well, you know, like people of color made this so we can't critique this. You know, right. can't critique it. It's kind of like how Nick, uh, Nick will talk about how Pitchfork, the music magazine, um, has increasingly gotten more kind of having the kid gloves on when it comes to hip hop like that, you know, like Kanye West is going to get an extra, you know, point on pitchfork because right. nobody, nobody wants to be the white guy who's criticizing black art. Right. Like, that's just real. But I yeah. think it's going to be awesome if we ever come to a place in our lifetime where art that comes out of more diverse communities is taken behind, you know, taken out and beaten to a pulp, just like the rest of, yeah. of cultural artifacts, whether it's about white guys or black guys or whoever. Now I'm not saying we're there yet. I'm not saying that's the right move at this point. That's a whole different discussion, right. but I think Hamilton carries the promise of that kind of, um, that kind of reality where art is considered for its own sake and not as simply the manifestation of a certain cultural or political agenda. And that makes me happy. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And again, it's it's the to the credit of the creator for for following his his integrity as an artist and focusing on story and characters and on things that he wants to focus on, which are which are part of his form. Yep. At the end of the day, this is a beautifully told, incredibly inspired, 
um, historically uh, refreshing, yeah. motivating, culturally challenging piece of art. And I, you know, Michelle Obama said it's the best piece of art she's ever seen um, of yeah, any the, kind. The exact quote is, quote, best piece of art in any form that I have ever seen in my life. End quote. Yes, and I think that that's not insane. Like, I don't think that's insane to say. Um, I yeah. think there are certain things that just grip you and just go. Mm-hmm. It, there's so many layers of goodness. Um, but uh, I think we'll leave it there for now. Um, I think Max wants to go back to actually listening to the soundtrack. Um, <laughs> Great. But Tim, thanks for taking the time today. And I appreciate your um, willingness to kind of dive into Hamilton. Is there anything that you are doing in South Florida theater wise that our listeners should know about? Um, yeah, definitely. So New City Players is the, the company that I have founded with a, a few friends of mine. Um, so if newcityplayers.org is our website. We just wrapped up our first season, uh, and we are actually going to decide tonight. We're making our final decision of what plays we're going to do next year. And we'll be, nice. we'll be coming out with something in the spring, a couple things in the summer, something in the fall. So sort of amp- amping our game, looking for... Uh, sponsors, looking for board members, clarifying our message. It's, it's an exciting time for the company that I'm building, for sure. Awesome. And real quick, what were the plays that you guys ran the first season? So we did uh, No Exit by Jean-Paul Sartre, or however you say it. Whatever. Sartre. Sartre. Um, it's uh, croissant. Exactly. Yeah. Not croissant. It, yeah, it's it's just that over and over and over and over. That's Try not point. feeling like a jerk, like pronouncing it croissant at a bakery. <laughs> I challenge you. <laughs> you you can't not uh, unless you're a sociopath. <laughs> um, and then we did the Glass Menagerie, which directed by Tennessee Williams, which is a, a play that's very dear to my heart. And then we did a, a stage reading of a new play, so sort of a workshop kind of situation. A play written by my friend Rick Negrone, who you know, mm-hmm. Ryan, mm-hmm. Um, and read it read it for an audience and had critiques and feedback, and hopefully can produce that full scale in a couple of years after some some changes have been made. So. Cool, man. Well, we look forward to more from New City Players, and uh, check them out. Is it newcityplayers.org? That's it. Yep. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tim. Uh, guys and gals who are listening. Uh, this has been uh, Ryan Huber and special guest him. Tim Davis. And you will hear from us on the mean next week. Thanks and bye. Bye.